0: you rolling once again i am lee grant this is kevin pendergrass and as always we are exploring faith and pursuing grace and in my estimation there is no greater pursuit than that of the grace of god joining us today we have a very special guest we have an eminently qualified guest to discuss the topic under consideration today we have dr linda king uh Linda, you said we could call you Linda. It's going to be hard for me to do that and not call you Dr. King, but I'll uh, gladly acquiesce to your request. Linda, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Lee.
0: Thank you. Dr. King, or Linda, as she has asked us to call her, has a PhD, a doctorate in biblical interpretation from Bright Divinity School. She has a Master of Theological Studies from uh, Texas Christian University and Bright Divinity School. And you also were an attorney for many years.
1: Yes, I practiced law for close to 40 years. Oh, wow. Uh, and you know what? When I went to a divinity school and, and seminary, as they would call it, uh, there were lots of lawyer jokes. And they'd say, <laughs> Oh, we know what you're doing and what you're as a lawyer here. You're just trying to atone for your sins. And, <laughs> and I said, No, actually, I was originally an English teacher. Then I went to law school and then I went to divinity school to really study the scriptures and interpretation more deeply. And they are very uh, similar in in key ways in that they each involve taking a, a text that is privileged or that you expect, whether it's a Shakespearean sonnet or whether it is a treaty or a statute or whether it is scripture And you look for authorial intent and you try to understand it the way the first audiences would have heard it or the first readers, and then you try to apply it to the facts at hand. So they really share an approach.
0: That is really interesting. In addition to earning your PhD and earning a master's degree and being a a doctor of the law, you also were an adjunct instructor for the St. Paul School of Theology in their Oklahoma City campus, and you taught first year Greek for them as well. So this is, it's a real treat to have you on. Kevin and I love talking to people that are smarter than we are and that know more than we do.
2: And that's not, that's not very hard for me. So it's, uh,
0: Well, we're we're very grateful that you're taking time out of your schedule to join us in spite of some of the technical issues we had getting things to work we're going now, and we're very much looking forward to this discussion and what we will be discussing this evening on this episode is what is called the egalitarian perspective or the egalitarian view. And this is a perspective that takes into account or rather considers the role of women in theology and in preaching and in teaching. And really, even beyond that, even beyond that narrow scope that it's often considered in within our conversations, within the churches of Christ and within the church at large, this is often a conversation that also plays a social role as well. Um, This is a part of a conversation that was involved in women's suffrage back in the 20s. This has been a conversation involved in women's rights to work and to earn and and various things of that matter, but we're mainly concerned with the egalitarian perspective as it relates to theology and our application in the practice of our faith.
1: Well, that's right, and I might be helpful if I were to disclose to your listeners that uh, part of my, um, where I stand in my understanding today is derived from study, but a whole lot of it, uh, a good bit of it, is just derived from lived experience because I am in the, uh, shall we say, 70 plus category of age, <laughs> and, and in the last 70 years, I have seen lots of and experienced Lots of changes in all those domains you talk about. Uh, When I was in law school, there were only three women in the class ahead of me at uh, University of Oklahoma. By my year, it had jumped up to maybe 20. And now, of course, it's half and half. But uh, same in the work world. It was uh, was unusual for uh, women to be in the... Uh, practicing before the bar and in court and there were lots of um, uh, rude comments some many supportive ones as well but um some were intentional some were not and so uh that's that has changed so rapidly in Mm -hmm. the in the years of my career and my life so this is not all just um, a theoretical approach i have lived a lot of this And it's based on real experience, both in the professional world and at our small congregation uh, in Edmond, Oklahoma, where we've been about mm, 36 years.
0: So the congregation that you are a part of, you have not only served as a parishioner there or a teacher there, but from what I understand and from what Kevin told me, even as a Bible class teacher and a guest lecturer, you have also served as an elder. At your congregation as well, which is an extremely uncommon position, and I would even say an incredibly rare position for a woman to hold, especially within the churches of Christ.
2: Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, really how we met, uh, Linda and I. We've really haven't known each other that long. <laughs> Just we've only been speaking now probably for about a month or a few weeks. But uh, Chip, who is also one of the elders there, we ha- we've been speaking. Uh, oh, me and Chip now probably have had handful of conversations over the past couple of years. And so when we were wanting to delve into this topic of egalitarianism, I just asked him what he thought and if he had any suggestions, if he wanted to come on our show or if there was anybody that he knew. And uh, Linda, you're the first one that came to his mind. He said, I have the perfect person. He said, one of my fellow elders here, Linda, he said, she would be great to have on. She's As you just pointed out, she's lived it. She's studied it. It's uh, not just someone who's fresh out of school and is wanting to to change things, which sometimes is the um, kind of the stereotype. Sometimes, at least that I was taught that if, if you believe in egalitarianism, you must be a millennial who is just wanting to shake things up a bit. And you really haven't studied the Bible. You really haven't lived very long. And that's why I think it's such a privilege to have you on our program Um, because if you, as you worded it, your words, not mine, you're a seasoned individual. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, this is something that, that, you know, you're, you, you have lived, you have spent a great amount of time studying from my understanding, you were raised in the churches of Christ. And so this is going to be interesting as Lee pointed out to have this conversation, especially with our, our audience, because, when they hear the idea of a female a woman being an elder in the churches of Christ, I, I can imagine to some of our audience, that's a big shock factor. And I know that that's something that uh, you probably get quite often, or at least once did, especially when day spring went in that direction. And so if you would just tell us a little bit about that history and, and how that came to be and not necessarily right now, so much just the, the, the theological side of things, but just the pragmatic side of how that happened.
1: Well, pragmatically, our congregation grew out of a uh, home Bible study group uh, about 36 years ago, several years we had been studying it, and many of us had gone to uh, Oklahoma Christian University for our undergraduate work, but not all of us, and and so we had most of us grown up in churches of Christ where we had sometimes seen abuses of power from Um, elderships or sometimes from the pulpit, sometimes from other groups, but we, when we began the congregation, we asked the blessing of all the other uh, churches of Christ in town. There were several, and we said, we're not stomping away mad. We're just going to try this uh, new ministry, And, and we received that blessing in general, and, but we, not intentionally, but almost inadvertently, it just worked out that we didn't have the money to um, hire a paid staff. And we had all had many decades um, serving churches in one capacity or the other, some youth ministers, some pulpit ministers, and some Bible class teachers. So we just did uh, home do-it-yourself church, basically. And we had no hierarchy. We had uh, the money we gave, Paid a little bit of rent, and the rest went, you know, over half went to mission work. Um, so we didn't have a built in hierarchical structure. And we also didn't have pews. We had folding chairs. Now, this may all seem like uh, so much tangential fluff, but I think in retrospect, it helped us make a transition to a less hierarchical and more egalitarian. Uh, view of one another as brothers and sisters in Christ each with separate gifts separate uh, talents separate uh, approaches anyhow we sat in folding chairs in circles concentric circles and we still do to this day we can arrange the chairs however that you know but uh, that's what we do and therefore we can look in what look at one another and speak uh speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and, and uh, classes and all of that sort of thing. So I, I actually believe that our um, sort of loose organization back in those early years uh, helped us. Now, early on leaders emerge, you know, you don't just um, go, well, you're the this and you're the that leaders emerge and so they did and we just called them leaders at first. And then after a few years, we decided um, why not do it and uh, go ahead and observe the um, biblical names for these leaders. And they were mature and they fit the uh, uh, the ideal descriptions that were uh, in the New Testament. And so we uh, named uh, leaders, elders, but we mostly call them shepherds because uh, their they they then uh, and we since all since have viewed their role not chiefly as rulers or bishops but as shepherds and and uh, uh, so pastoral roles and that made it um, easier to understand. How there were some ways that that women could fit into that. So then, before the millennium, in the nineties, we named our um, uh, first deaconesses or deacons, and including females, and nobody had much trouble with that because, um, you know, Phoebe is in Romans sixteen is called a deacon, or and uh, there's several Romans sixteen. Uh, women named who seemed to have uh, had central roles in serving the church, uh, Junia for one, but a a number of others. And so that nobody sort of choked on that. But uh, then we got into the 21st century and we decided we really need to study this issue. So our congregation spent two years, two years, uh, studying the role of women and we had guest speakers from every just about every conceivable point of view to come in and talk with us and after that and we had certain rules for the conversation uh, because it was a process with us all and so we would have Sunday afternoon meetings and we would have hired babysitters childcare, and we would just have a presentation or uh, on some aspect of this, and then we'd all discuss it and talk about it, and of course there were prayers, there were tears, there was also, some people can't handle a conflict at all. And we had one family say, we're going to be behind whatever the elders decide, but we, it makes us too anxious to have the conflict. We're gonna volunteer to work in the nursery. We'll be up here every Sunday afternoon (laughs) in the nursery, but we're not gonna get in there and debate it with you. You know. And so we had to respect people's tolerance for change and also their reasons to either be for change or resist change. And that when you have enough time to discuss it and you don't have a pre-ordained outcome, you can listen to one another and then really uh, there's room for empathy and understanding and more mutual respect. So we had one man who said, my daddy before he died, Uh, On his deathbed, he said, I'm looking to you, son, to keep uh, mama and the family, your sisters in the, you keep them in the faith and you keep them in the church. And so this man at a meeting said, "I, I, I don't think if we had, I don't think that women leaders are sinful. I just think my daddy wouldn't recognize it as the church he wanted me to keep the family in. So before, uh, a a number of people had thought, well, boy, he's a hard-nosed old dinosaur (laughs) troglodyte. Well, now we understood a lot of what was really mm, a barrier for him. On the other hand, we had people, uh, several women, who said, it's it's killing me uh, to have to come here and be like a puppet manipulating my husband and I have a thought and I have to whisper it in his ear and he gets to say it and one of these women worked at a a shelter for battered women and she said all day every day I tell women that they are entitled to their own voice they can use their own voice and have their own thoughts and their own understanding and their own relationships with the Lord and then I come here and I have to do this marionette thing uh this is this dissonance I can't tolerate. So we had, so some people might've thought, well, she's a hard boiled feminist man hater, you know, that sort of thing. Well, no, that wasn't the case at all. And so that experience of sitting for hours and listening to one another over the course of two years uh, was so helpful and it didn't feel forced like there was an outcome that we must all reach.
2: Well, and that that in and of itself is just so encouraging to hear the process of how that happened because Lee and I, that's something that we have really learned a lot about is the importance of listening to others and to hear different perspectives without trying to force a conclusion. You know, we all have our biases and we all come to the table with our preconceived ideas and assumptions, but just trying to hear what others have to say, to listen to their experience, to listen to their perspective, to hear what they uh, interpret scripture and how they interpret scripture and why they interpret that way, it, it just really helps to uh, in, in one way, not only learn, but also to have more respect and patience and love for one another. and more humility in learning that people see things very different from each other, but they 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 love the Lord the same. And the fact that this is something that you didn't rush into, this is something the congregation didn't say, hey, we just need to get with the times and, and we, we're, we're wanting more people in here so we can have a you know nicer building or pay our preacher more, you know, all of those accusations that sometimes are hurled at, at certain individuals for changing. That's just clearly not the case here. And I think anytime a change like this occurs, you have to have a lot of study. You have to have a lot of consideration of all members. It sounds like that's exactly what you did. You have to have a lot of prayer and just everything that you've explained so far, I think your audience would definitely agree with that whole process. They may not agree with the conclusion, but there's no way that you can knock the process and the wisdom behind that process. And Lee, I think there was something too, you wanted to, to add as well.
0: Well, pretty much just what you said is, is what I was wanting to get at too. But what's amazing to me is this whenever you're not married to an outcome and you're not going in there to drive an agenda and you really have a degree of humility that wants to pursue truth and then make application of that truth no matter where that road leads because sometimes in that journey for truth it can be an arduous journey sometimes it can be an uncomfortable journey especially when the conclusions that you see on the horizon tend to run counter to what you have always held to be sacrosanct and what you've always held to be true at that point it's it's really humbling to undo some of the mindset that existed before that gets in the way of being able to accept that truth in order to accept it and in in this day and age with with fast food and with with streaming on demand we're used to having everything that we want thrown into our laps immediately i mean if i order something on amazon with prime and it takes more than a day to get here i'm I'm starting to get impatient. I'm wondering, where in the world is this stuff? Where's my tracking number? Where's my stuff that I ordered? And I, I start to flip out. I start to lose my mind a little bit. And so often, this would be something that you know, you'd know you expect, well, in three months, we don't have an answer. Where are we? What are we going to do? What's our decision? And this is not a decision that can be made lightly. I mean, this is a decision. And the conclusions that you came to at Dayspring in, in your church, in your congregation, it's a, it's a conclusion that definitely runs counter to the mold that we see within the churches of Christ. So uh, what I would like to ask next, Linda, is through that process of discussion, what was the scriptural basis that you guys based your conclusions upon that, that led you to this egalitarian perspective that allows for and encourages the full participation of women, not only in teaching roles, but also within the governance of the church itself?
1: Well, that's uh, that's a big question, and so if you'll give me a few minutes, I'll try to share some of uh, share some of that.
2: Well, Linda, we figured we would uh, take about two years uh, to go over all of this information with you,
0: and <laughs> this will be our longest episode ever. But we'll we'll get there.
1: You know, I I should say at the beginning, and this also is related to that age thing, but uh, all of us that were involved in this decision and that were so committed to. Uh, seeking the Lord's will in this, we all shared a respect, a a, a love of the scriptures. And uh, you might call it, some would call it a high view of scripture, uh, that not that they're just suggestions, not that uh, the Bible is just uh, a story that is um, an ex- offered as an example of uh, warts and all, but that it really has been given to us and preserved for our um, guidance by, uh, by God and by the Holy Spirit. And so we all really, well, it was important that we search the scriptures about this. And many of us, 36 years ago, were children of the 60s, 50s and 60s. And so I'll just put in a little footnote here, and you all can laugh at it. But in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, the Cold War was going on. And there were fears, real fears, that the communists were going to take over this country. And the first thing they were going to do was burn all the Bibles.
0: <laughs> and so,
1: I, This is the church where I grew up, here in Oklahoma. And so we took it seriously, and we took the King James, which is what we had at that time. We took the King James Bible, and we divided it up, we, and began to memorize it. Now, I myself was a, a young girl, junior high, so I took Galatians, because I didn't think I could memorize anything any longer than that, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so
2: I take third John.
1: <laughs> yeah, really, really. So I say that just to say we had a love of scripture and still do and, and a high regard for it. And when, uh, we, we want to be to study, to show ourselves approved to God, uh, workman that need not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so, uh, all of that is to explain sort of our, our motivation as we approach the scriptures. And after doing that, we as a, as a congregation, and but I'm really going to speak for myself today, but uh, I am among people that share this view, um, conclude that the Bible teaches full equality of men and women in status and their giftedness and an opportunity for ministry and, and service in the church in whatever way God has uh, gifted them and the Holy Spirit leads them. And a lot of that comes from uh, uh, the very beginnings of scripture from the creation uh, accounts in, in Genesis. And so I will just start there in sort of my description of these, uh, these spiritual, these scriptural basis. Um, I believe that the scriptures teach that men and women were created by God and equally bear his image. Male and female created he them. And that God's intention was for the man and the woman to be with one another uh, in his image and, reflect the intimacy and the love that exists between father, son and the Holy Spirit. The the three spirits of the Godhead that in Genesis at creation, man and woman each had a direct relationship with God. And they shared equally in having dominion over the created order. That was before the fall when God told male and female created he them and he told humankind to he gave them dominion over uh, the creation however this perfect union disappeared when adam and eve sinned and so the struggle for power and the desire to rule over someone else is a result of human sin so i see genesis 316 where uh, maybe I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but um, when Adam and Eve confessed what had happened when they were found out and God is unhappy with them and uh, he pronounces a curse on the snake and a curse on the ground because of of what Adam has done. Uh, And interestingly, there is no curse mentioned about the woman. It does not say, uh are you, uh, but it does describe God as telling the woman uh, the effects of the consequences that are going to happen because of sin. And one of those is going to be pain and childbearing. And one of them is going, is your desire will be toward your husband or your will be turning toward your husband and he will rule over you. And that's the first inkling we have uh, is right there when God is pronouncing the consequences of sin. Now, you probably recall that Adam's uh, punishment or the consequences were described that he was going to have to labor by the sweat of his brow, labor for his bread by the sweat of his brow throughout all his days. And, uh, and the snake, of course, was gonna crawl on its belly and so forth. But I understand this description of the man ruling over the, the, the woman, of Adam ruling over Eve, of husband over wife, is a prediction of sin's effects in the world and not the divine ideal that was there before sin.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense whenever we think about it in those terms. Whenever we look at Genesis and we look at the created order and we look at God creating the man and then causing the deep sleep to fall over the man, and then he takes from the side of man and creates woman, you have really a sort of a baked in equality being stated there. And and it's something that's said by so many preachers whenever they preach a wedding you know, or whenever they conduct a wedding ceremony, it might be better to say that he didn't take it from man's head or from man's foot, you know, to trot her underfoot, but from his side as a helper comparable to him. You know, she is someone who is considered to be on equal footing with the man until the fall happens and until sin enters into the world. And so that's a really interesting perspective to take on this.
2: Yeah, and and that's something else that uh, Lee, what what you brought up that I found I found interesting in my own study is that before the fall, when you look at Genesis one and two, the word "helper" uh, or "suitable," uh, the the Hebrew word, and, and Linda, you you could either affirm this or correct me on this, but for my study, that actually is a word that denotes equality and 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 it's something that is adequate. It's you know God creating woman. Uh, as, as man's helper is in the sense of being his counterpart and partner, not in the sense of being subordinate in any way. And, and that term, the, when I was just studying this a little bit, it's, it's never a term of inferiority in any sense of, of the word. And most of the time in the Old Testament, it refers actually to God, who is Israel's helper, the the who is who is Israel's uh, helpmeet, if you will, and so for someone to try to make the argument that prior to the fall, you know, God woman was to be a man's, you know, that God created a woman suitable to to help the man, and and to use that to try to imply that that is in some way a subordinate position uh, would imply that somehow God the Father was. Was to be a you know in in submission or subordinate to Israel itself, uh, which nobody I don't think would take that position. And so the forming of of the woman from the man's side, as Lee was talking about in that story as well, just kind of indicates that unity and that equality that God had intended for all human beings from the time of creation.
1: Well, both of you gentlemen have gone where I was going next, and so you've already said a lot of it. But I'll just elaborate just a little bit and. <clears throat> For those who rely on genesis to support uh, a position of female subordination uh, or to argue for male domination there's probably an element of confusion about that word um, that term help meet, which in English has sort of morphed into helpmate uh, yes and so we tend to think of help in business terms as a as an apprentice or a subordinate, uh, uh, which can lead us to think of Eve as Adam's girl Friday, you know. But uh, in in the Genesis 2:18 passage, you're talking about the Hebrew word that's translated "help" is "ezer," and it appears 21 times in the Bible, and 16 of those times it refers to God being an ezer to human beings. And several of the other times, it refers to military support, like from uh, another force coming in to join you. And um, it can even be suggestive of savior, mm. someone who saves or rescues you. So there's nothing in any of uh, these usages that suggests being a helper to man uh, makes, makes, them support, makes someone subordinate, just as it didn't make God subordinate. Well, the second part of the confusion, uh, as Kevin, you've uh, r- alluded to, is a result of our no longer using the word meat in its archaic sense, which uh, was used in the King James Version uh, in 1607. The word is an adjective that just means suitable or fit or appropriate or corresponding to and so in the King James version, we see the same word uh, meat in English translations in Matthew 15 and Mark seven, where Jesus tells the Syrophoenician woman uh, who would like her daughter healed. He says, it's not meat, uh, M-E-E-T to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. He means it's not proper, it's not appropriate, it's not suitable, it's not, um, it's not good. But for the last several hundred years, English speakers have used the word meet almost exclusively as a verb or as a short form of the verb meeting, like a track meet. Uh, so we've lost the sense of meet that was contained in the King Jim James Version, which was the only translation used by most English speakers for the last four centuries, really just until about fifty years ago. So when teachers and preachers were trying to understand and grapple with the word meet a help meet um we didn't by and large uncomprehend what it meant for a woman to be a helper meet for man so the two words just kind of got glommed together and morphed into a a sense of helpmate which carried with it a sense of being an auxiliary auxiliary or secondary or sometimes subordinate but uh, we should note that jesus who was our only divine human glimpse of what God is really like, never treated women as inferiors or subordinates. He defied, or you could say ignored or disregarded or transcended the customs of his time and culture and shocked his disciples sometimes in his unconventional treatment of women. So I would, um, I would say that uh, the original relationship between man and woman as created by God was not hierarchical. It was egalitarian. It was a union of two equal but wonderfully different individuals, both made in God's image, and the rule of man was a result of the law.
2: Linda, I, had, I have a question, if you don't mind me interrupting for a moment, because you said I something I had, I had never really thought about before. Uh, When in Genesis three, God is giving the, he's pronouncing the curses. It it never really, you're, you're right. I had never even thought about that in Genesis three, that the curse for the woman, it was not God actually saying, I am cursing you. And this is what you're going to do. It wasn't, it doesn't seem to be prescriptive. It's more just descriptive of this is how things are going to play out. And just historically looking at the patriarchal society and how women were treated, and, and just even how the Bible itself um, talks about that throughout the Old Testament. It just assumes it's, it's natural culture at that time. It, it's interesting to think of the curse in Genesis 3, not as prescriptive, but descriptive. And so I never have really thought about it in that way before, especially in comparison when God's going through and talking to to, um, to Adam and to, to the serpent and those types of things. And so I I thought that was just a really good point. I I didn't want to get you to, I didn't want to veer off too far from where you were going uh, now, but before we moved away from that too far, I just wanted to go back to that and say, I, I thought that was a really good point that I had never considered.
1: Well, and just as we wouldn't, uh, even if you consider it part of the curse and that God just didn't mention curse as to Eve, the curse of <clears throat> on the ground that caused man to have to work by the sweat of his brow, uh, his whole life long to earn, earn his bread. I don't think most of us would say it is a sin not to, um, not to drive a tractor. You know, it is a, <laughs> it, it is a sin to drive a tractor or even an air conditioned tractor so that you don't sweat. <laughs> uh, we would say it's okay to mitigate the effects of that, uh, of that hardship. It's okay to mitigate the pain in childbirth. There's no glory in, in foregoing, um, it's not a moral issue whether you say, I don't want an anesthesia uh, or I don't want some um, uh, spinal or I don't want uh, some analgesic of some sort. Uh, We would say, just as men no longer have to labor in agriculture or even sweat it's okay for them to even be wealthy and manage money or be a physician or do sit behind a microscope they it's okay to um, vitiate or media uh, mitigate the results of that curse um, and same for women with regard to childbirth but just not regard to this one thing about your husband's <laughs> going to rule over you. It's, it's not very consistent or logical there.
0: <laughs> well, that is a point that I had never considered there. You just blew my mind sister, because that it, that's absolutely true. You know, my wife and I, we we're blessed to have had four children. And our first child was born in a hospital and, and I'm not going to bunny trail too far off of this here, but she ended up for other circumstances that we won't get into being a C section delivery. And I mean, there's no one who would decry us for utilizing all of the resources at our disposal to, like you said, mitigate that discomfort and that extreme excruciating pain that would come with such a delivery, just as there's no nobody who would pat us on the back for having our other three at home and having an unmedicated delivery and say, oh, well, now you're really keeping in with what the Bible says. You're doing what the Bible says. No one's going to do that. But whenever it comes to this idea of your husband will rule over you, oh no, we got to leave that alone. That that's an excellent point that I had never considered. Well,
2: and and I'm glad too because you know I have uh, I don't think I've ever broke a sweat. Selling promotional products, I don't. I don't ever think (laughs) once there's been a. There's been a few times when I wasn't sure if an order was going to go through or if we weren't going to get the order in on time that I may have (laughs) sweat, you know, a few drops of sweat poured out from me. But other than that, uh, you know, I have I don't I don't go out every morning. In fact, I have to purposefully make myself go work out, uh, and sweat so I do get exercise because that's not what I do for a living. And so that that is, I have never really. I thought of it in the terms that you so eloquently put it because yeah, no one ever says, well, look, this is part of the curse. So if you give, you know, p- part of uh, being a woman is having pain through childbirth. So if you try to take any form of medication to, uh, to ease that pain, you're actually violating uh, the scripture. I- I've never heard, I'm, of course, there may be somebody who, to, who argues that, but I don't think that that's a a common argument. I think most people would, it, would at least concede that point. And so you're right in saying that that's very, Inconsistent at best to to say that 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 one unique phrase uh, applies of the husband ruling over, but everything else is is no longer in effect today or doesn't have to be.
1: Yes, all those other consequences of sin we we decry and we try we we aim to get back to the close unity with God and um, and not the broken relationship. That happened between God and woman, and between God and man, at, at the fall, at the at the disobedience in the in the Genesis story. Well, so the um, a, a second area of scripture that I see as supporting the egalitarian approach uh, to relationships in Christ is Jesus's own example. In the gospels, I love the gospels, and in the gospel stories, Jesus's interactions with women uh, were very much counter to uh, a number of cultural norms. We see Jesus having conversations with women, like the Samaritan woman in John 4, and he actually disclosed to her that, you know, He's the Messiah. Um, that the Canaanite woman uh, that we've already mentioned, the Syrophoenician woman with Martha um, in the Gospel of John. You know, Martha, after the death of her brother Lazarus, uh, she comes out and says, "You know, Master, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died." And and he uh, tells us tells Martha. Um, you'll see your brother again. And she said, he'll live again. And she says, I know he will in the resurrection, but, uh, you know, at the end of all things, when the, when the Messiah comes and Jesus says, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. And do you believe? And she gives this wonderful, great confession. We always think about the great confession is what Peter said, but, uh, but Martha gives a complete full understanding she says i believe that you are the messiah the anointed one who's coming into the who's coming into the world and so she's not only this exemplar of faith but she has the understanding of, of who this is and hers is a wonderful confession and jesus jesus asked her this and evoked this from her he could have asked Nicodemus. He could have asked other uh, some of the Pharisees. He could have asked some of his male dis- uh, apostles, his disciples, and yet he uh, engages in this deep, deep uh, conversation with his friend. And we know that Maria and Martha and Lazarus were friends of Jesus, and and he has this conversation with her, and she has the Privilege recorded for us in scripture of making this beautiful confession well then jesus also in the gospels um uh, touches women as he heals them like the uh raising of the uh Jairus's daughter and uh, the, uh, there was a woman crippled on the sabbath he um he showed so much love and understanding of the a woman who anointed Jesus in Luke seven. And there, there are several anointings of Jesus by women described in the gospels. And um, there's disagreement by interpreters if they are all referring to the same event or were there, are there maybe two events? But the woman who was, uh, who was washing Jesus's feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair And was criticized for it. Jesus said to his accusers, "Do you see this woman?" Well, obviously their eyes worked because they saw what they were fussing about, uh, critiquing him for. But he said, "Do you see this woman?" He really saw the women, not just as some um, veiled, nondescript. blob over there that was not a full fully formed uh child of god but he saw the woman and her needs and her gifts and her uh penitence and her guilt and her gratitude and all of that so jesus jesus unlike most of his peers could really see women Well, he accepted worship from women and the women, you know, supported him. And as disciples, many of them uh, provided for him during his ministry. And it sounds like he was close to them. And then ultimately, they stayed at the foot of the cross when his disciples, his male disciples fled. and, And they were there. And then at the at the Matthean story of the resurrection. Uh, uh, well, and it even happens in John when uh, Mary encounters Jesus in the garden. Um, he commissions them to go and be witnesses of the resurrection. Go and tell the others that I'll meet them in Galilee or go and tell the others that you've seen the, that I'm alive. And so It's interesting in that um, that is one of the qualifications to have been an apostle, was to have been a follower of Jesus and a witness of the resurrection, and to have gotten a commission to go and spread the good news, the gospel, to others, and that's what happened. And so from the earliest centuries of the Christian faith, there have been church leaders who've who viewed um, uh, those women as apostles in some sense of the word. They were sent to proclaim the goodness. So Jesus, uh, it, from the picture in the gospels, Jesus um, departed from the customs of his Jewish upbringing. He was an observant Jew and by his example, he was an advocate for cultural change, and he was a messenger from heaven declaring the acceptance of the father for daughters. Now, you two guys, I want to ask you, I know you're Bible scholars, so where in the New Testament does it talk about being daughters of God?
0: Kevin, I'm going to defer that one to you, brother. (laughs) There's talks- lots
1: about sons of God, aren't they? Well, I'm sure you can tell me lots about being sons of God.
2: Abs, okay. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anybody? Anybody?
0: I'm cheating. I'm using Google. Uh,
1: <laughs> um, well, I'm going to look it up here. Um, it is in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18. It's the only place that explicitly says, not children of God, but says sons and daughters of God. And it's quoting a passage Mm -hmm. that the sense of which is in the Old Testament, but we can't find a word for word quotation where it's from, but it's when um, Paul is writing and he says, we're the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. Then I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I have to tell you men that when when I first saw that and realized that it was talking about being a daughter of God, it took my breath away. It, it really brought me to the verge of tears, because for most, and I was an adult, I was already up there. And uh, for most of my life, I had to take the English translation of the, the Greek term that could be uh, uh, sons and daughters. it could be men and women, Brothers and sisters, adelphos, and 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 I had to kind of do a, a sidestep. Let can I get into the spotlight? You know, <laughs> can I can can you direct that toward me? Because it was sons, 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 and sometimes it really uh, it really was talking about males. Sometimes those pronouns do talk about are directed toward males, but sometimes they're just the generic. Um, if it's a mixed group, it would use the words sons or sometimes uh, they would be translated uh, children, although that's really a separate word. But this says daughters. And I went, yay, I'm God's daughter. <laughs> and I can't tell you how thrilling that was. It might sound silly, but it was just remarkable. And I've had some of my African-American friends say that uh, when they whoops, goofed up on my computer. Some of my African-American friends say when they first saw uh, a Black face in a TV show, uh, when they first saw uh, a Black leader in a state house or in the uh, government, it was uh, a role model. It was uh, it was so liberating that they could... Uh, See themselves being modeled, being addressed, and so anyway.
2: Well, and that that's super interesting. And I don't know why Lee didn't know that passage. I think my phone, my uh, microphone was muted. I don't know what happened. No, I'm just kidding. And but 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 Lee and I all the time we talk about filters and how we study with certain filters. And there are certain passages that we know by heart. There are other passages that we've always just known through study or memorization or because it was important to us. And, you know, the fact that Lee and I didn't know that, I, I honestly didn't even know that passage was in there. I mean, I'm sure I know I've read it. I, I just apparently I didn't read it, <laughs> you know, and I and I think the same is true. Um, I, I think about uh, like passages like Luke 8, 1 through 3, because that was a passage that my wife, Bethany, actually pointed out to me not too long ago. We were talking about it, and she said, uh, I think we were watching The Chosen, the new series, and she said, you know, a lot of people don't realize that there were women, multiple women who travel with Jesus, and they were really the financial supporters of that whole ministry, but they were also his disciples, and they traveled around with with everyone else as well. And that's just a point that is usually not emphasized. It's not really seen in a lot of... uh, Books, uh, as far as you know, children's literature and books and things like that, are pictures. You just don't think of Jesus walking around with both male and female. You just you just think of Jesus walking around with his twelve disciples. And when you realize that there were these women there. And not only that, were there ministering and part of the disciples of with, with Jesus, but they were the ones who were really making it happen. I mean, it's it's kind of always been the case. I guess you could say women were the ones always making things happen, but they were the ones really, truly allowing this to be to be the case where they could go around and uh, and minister the way they were doing and be these, uh, for lack of better words, traveling missionaries. And so I, I thought that was interesting too. That that just reminded me of that when you went to Second Corinthians because that's just one of those passages. We don't really think of we don't have that that framework oftentimes, and so thank you for pointing out that out. That that was that's fantastic.
1: Well, I'm glad you enjoyed discovering it too, just as I did, and I hope some of your um, your maybe your female listeners or your and also your male listeners will go have an aha moment, you know, daughters of God. Well, uh, then after the gospels, well, of course the gospels tell about Jesus being in Mary and Martha's home and how. Mary sat at his feet and wanted to learn from him. And that was so remarkable and extraordinary because usually uh, the girls were illiterate uh, and they certainly didn't study Torah and they weren't expected to uh, acquit themselves in the synagogue Mm -hmm. in any sort of religious conversation at all and so, uh, Jesus, by his behavior, modeled his respect and his treatment of them as uh, a serious counterpart for a theological discussion, and and um, that's that's a beautiful thing. Uh, not that it's not beautiful to be uh, doing the other areas of ministry, like providing the money or providing the food or doing the other things, but also uh, learning and studying if master speak, which is what Mary did. Well, then we get into Acts, and... Uh, in Acts 2, all the, uh, the, the disciples, the believers, were gathered together, you know, on the day of Pentecost. They were in the upper room. They were waiting and praying. That's in Acts chapter 1. And then what happened is the thing that had been predicted to happen in Joel 2, where uh, which is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And he says, in that day, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters daughters will prophesy even on my servants both men and women i will pour out my spirit so uh, just as the believers were gathered together uh, after jesus's ascension they were gathered there awaiting as they had been told for the um, spirit to come with power and here comes the spirit being poured out on sons and daughters on men and women and uh, the gifts of the holy spirit then in acts two right after the repent and be baptized passage says for the and you'll receive the gift of the holy spirit and it was promised for you and your children and for all who are far off it doesn't say you and your little boy child it says you and your children and for all the future generations. and we know that that's what happened because uh, the New Testament talks about the daughters of Philip who um, uh, prophesied and it, uh, he had four daughters who, were, who prophesied. And in, then in Paul's correspondence to the church at Corinth, uh, he talks about how women have to be careful uh, to not be unseemly as they pray and prophesy in the assembly. So we know that that, that prophecy that, uh, about the pouring out of the spirit that actually happened on the day of Pentecost was carried through even into the uh, infant church, into the, into the early church.
0: So Dr. King, I have a question that I'd like to ask you about acts two, if I may, Mm -hmm. In in the discussion on this topic that I had with somebody, and of course it was on the internet. So it went nowhere, because that's usually how discussions on the internet go. They go nowhere. Um, the statement was made in reference to Joel's prophecy that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost, that your sons and daughters will prophesy, <coughs> is that this was a promise and the outpouring and the preaching that was taking place on that day was still limited to only the 12, or rather the 11 plus Matthias, if you know we want to call it that. Um, basically this this individual was tracking back through Luke's account at the ascension where that promise was made or rather the directive was given to go into Jerusalem and wait for the spirit to come in power and for that event to transpire, that it was only to the men that that was given. Therefore it was only to the men. Um, Only the men are mentioned in Acts chapter 1 And therefore that whenever the spirit fell, it only fell on the men and they were prophesying. So it was only the men that were speaking there. We don't have women public teaching. And my reply was, "Is well, if we track with the women from Galilee that were with Jesus throughout his ministry, we see them following him the whole time. We see them being the first to declare that he is risen from the tomb. We see that they were present with them in the upper room in Acts chapter one, whenever the spirit fell And furthermore, it would make no sense for Peter then to speak to Joel's prophecy if that isn't what was happening. Yeah, your sons and daughters will prophesy, but it's only the dudes talking over here. So yeah, it's that, but it's not really that, even though the women are not having anything to say. Is My question then, with all of that being said, is there merit possibly to that idea that the that it was only the men that the spirit fell on or is that, is that a case of confirmation bias or special pleading? Hmm.
1: <clears throat> well, I've not addressed that exact question, but I'm looking at Acts 1 right now and as you say, uh, the, the disciples who had seen um, Jesus after his resurrection and he said, uh, men of gal you know the angel said men of galilee why do you stay here they all returned to jerusalem but it says when they entered the city they went to the room upstairs where they were staying peter and john james and andrew philip and thomas bartholomew and matthew james the son of Alphaeus and simon the zealot judas son of james all of these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women including mary the mother of jesus as well as his brothers and then uh, <clears throat> And then we have the spirit falling on the people. It is it, it is possible that only the men um, uh, stood up and spoke that day, and all of the others didn't. Although um, it's in chapter two that what we have is chapter two. It says when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And then suddenly comes the the rush of wind and the tongues of fire as a fire and appeared on each of them and all of them were filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in other languages as the spirit gave them utterance so um maybe luke has gone back and said well yes i was talking about all of them but now i'm going back here and just talking about the the ones who basically took the vote on uh, cast the lots to uh, replace judas and so And then now I'm gonna go back out and and talk about, we we can't know for sure what those pronouns refer to, but we do know that uh, Peter referenced that as pouring out the spirit on all flesh, as you point out. And so that would make it um, less remarkable if it was only, uh, if he was using that prophecy to reinforce and give authority what was happening on that day now you know there were there were no um, uh, Gentiles in that group at that time and so we have the spirit being poured out on Cornelius later uh, in, in the book of Acts and and we have the story of the daughters that prophesied and um, and we have this story, uh, and I would say that's by the Holy Spirit. We don't think that they were just uh, like the Oracle of Delphi that was, you know, doing doing it for money or doing it by some sort of magic. They were, they were commanded. In fact, early church, uh, early church uh, records, historians refer to a statement of Papius, who was um, a, a bishop in. Jerusalem as I recall and he said that a couple of the daughters who prophesied ended up uh, being teachers in the church but that's just extra that's just that's extra biblical history yes that is extra biblical history but no one suggests that that was that they were bogus prophets that that they really did uh, prophesy and then of course we have what was going on in the Corinthian church where women were praying and prophesying, presumably not in their closet. They were doing it in the assembly and they needed to observe proper decorum so as not to um, give the outsider something else to suspect and um, do character assassination of uh, and violence toward the, the fledgling church. There were lots of rumors going around at that time.
0: Well, I just that, that. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. No, go ahead, please.
1: No, I was uh, going to move on to another uh, passage. So go ahead, Lee.
2: Well, and know. and I was going to break in here too, Lee, and, and just from listening to both of you talk about this and the discussion, Lee, you said that you were having, I, I think when you look at the totality of scripture, you always see female prophetess. I mean, prophetess is, <laughs> you, you see that with Miriam in Exodus 15, you know, you, you see this, Throughout the Old Testament, I mean, you even see uh, um, Anna uh, as well. I'm trying to think of where that's at. Uh, Luke 2, 36, she's described as as a prophetess. And then, as Linda, you mentioned, you see this uh, going forth in Acts, and then we see it at the church in Corinth. And so the fact that someone wants to say, for whatever reason— there was this just kind of like break in Acts 2, I, th- I think does lend itself more or less to special pleading, because my question would be, well, why? Why would anyone think that? I mean, none, none of the Jews would have, have thought, oh, well, you know, a female can't be a prophetess. I mean, they, they there had always been prophetesses. And then also um, something that, Linda, you already read this, but just going back to Acts chapter 1 in verse 14, it says that all of these were with one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so you do have women together in that in that upper room with the, uh, the disciples as well. And so I don't know, it just, like Linda said, I think it's, I mean, anything, I guess, technically possible when you don't have the uh, definitive answer in front of you, but it just seems that there, there's a bias if someone wants to say, well, yeah, we see all these prophecies prophesying throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the gospel accounts. We see it in Acts. We see it in Corinth. And Acts 2, Peter explicitly mentions females, but females didn't prophesy. <laughs> and so it, it, that, to me, would just be a hard, hard argument to, or stretch uh, to make. Uh it, it, it seems like it's definitely being asked through the lenses of a, of a very... Uh, a very uh strong bias
1: <laughs> well yes i uh, i agree with you there and and even if we were to concede that point there the other passages you referenced uh suggest that it's uh it was a happening thing you know yeah. the holy spirit uh gave gifts and then you know we get into um we get into the book of romans where um the whole chapter 16, some people read the book of, uh, of the chapter 16 of Romans, uh, like, oh, I've got to do this to check it off my list, but it's just a laundry list of names. They're not very meaningful to me. Um, who cares what the, you know, what the Christmas list, uh, Christmas card list looked like, uh, or <laughs> the thank you notes. But there, it is really rich. With a, a, with a glimpses into what was going on in the church uh, at, at this time. And it begins with a commendation of Phoebe uh, as a, our sister Phoebe, a deacon uh, uh, of the church. And that can mean minister or it can mean servant, although usually servant is a translation of the group of the uh, word doulos meaning slave as opposed to um, diakonos meaning uh A minister or servant, but it could be servant, but she was clearly uh, uh, a prominent person there at the church, and uh, she probably had, uh, was a a benefactor, because in 16.2, it says, she has been a benefactor of many, and of myself as, as well, so she had, she had helped Paul out, as well as many others. We also have in Romans 16, uh, Prisca and Aquila and uh, we know that they, uh, they were leaders of a house church and some uh, interpreters make much of the fact that Prisca or some translations say Priscilla is mentioned first is that maybe she was the primary teacher but maybe not who knows uh, then there's uh, Mary the co-worker and then I really want to direct your attention to Romans sixteen seven. Where uh, Paul writes, greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Okay, Uh, I don't know what version you may be reading from. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard, and it says uh, the woman's name is Junia. But uh, some translations, like the one I grew up on, said Junius, Because the translators apparently thought, well, this had to be a fellow apostle or to be um, a a co-worker and someone who is prominent among the apostles. Well, that has to be male. But um, someone a few years back wrote a whole book on this very verse, and they did lots and lots of deep digging and studies of um, the... uh, writings on headstones and grave markers and rolls, various uh, secular literature, and they couldn't find any evidence of the name Junius as a man's name. There were lots and lots and lots of Junius as a woman's name. So yes, I suppose back then, there could be a boy named Sue, you know? <laughs> and, uh, there, there could have been a Junius, but the word is in Greek is Junia. And it was, it, it, the translators helped us out by masculinizing. So if, if this is really Junia and it's a woman and she's maybe a cousin, who knows, she's somehow uh, related, Uh, to Paul, and was in prison with him, and is prominent among the apostles. Well, what does that mean? Well, some say that means she was an apostle, and she was one of the outstanding ones, uh, or uh, the more public ones, or whatever, more uh, recognized ones. But apostle can just mean one cent. Uh, So maybe... She was commissioned for a particular purpose uh, to carry greetings or a message or perhaps funds or something. Maybe she was an apostle in that sense, or maybe saying she was prominent among the apostles means all oh, the apostles really liked her shepherd's pie. You know, maybe she was <laughs> really prominent, really liked her cooking. Uh, I don't know. I'm being a little facetious there, but it. It sort of demonstrates to what lengths our translators and interpreters interpreters have sometimes gone, uh, gone to. And then there are many, many, many other women uh, listed there uh, for special greetings from uh, Paul to the church at Rome. And so it it appears to me from from that from Uh, that women were uh, sometimes having leadership roles in the early church. They were hosting uh, churches in their homes. Um, Sometimes they were, if they had been trained, maybe by Jesus himself uh, in those conversations in Bethany, maybe they were teaching others, maybe like um, Lydia, they were wealthy and business women and they were, Uh, teaching others but the point is that it's not a he versus she it looks like in the very early church there were women active and not just sitting off yonder in the corner and not necessarily just dealing within the domicile uh, and with other women
0: well and it's so interesting to to consider it in those terms because the clarion call for the restoration movement from day 1 has been a restoration and a return to the primitive order a return to new testament christianity free of the trappings of denominationalism etc etc and whenever the entire milieu of the new testament is taken into account and even beyond that into the old testament scriptures as well within Within the nation of Israel and the way their nation functioned during the days of the judges and everything else, we see a, a stark contrast in the role of women then compared to what we traditionally have within churches in the restoration movement, at least those churches that, that share that restorationist movement DNA. Because whenever you really begin to dive into the scriptures and you really look, at the role women played, not only in the Old Testament, but within the new, within the early stages and even the later stages that we see in scripture of of how women functioned and moved within the church. It's undeniable whenever we take our blinders off and we, we do the best we can to eliminate our bias from the discussion that women played a role that's much, much greater than what we often consider even now. But as we bring this episode to a close, sister, I wonder, is there any other passages that stand out in your mind that you would like to touch upon or look at before we before we draw this conversation to a close?
2: And well, I want to want to let people know, too, we are going to be having another episode. And so uh, I'm sure there's people listening right now who are thinking, but what about all of those passages in First Timothy 2 or what about that verse in First Timothy 2? And so we're, we're planning on covering all that in the next episode for those who are just chomping at the bit, and all they're doing is uh, just just thinking of those passages right now. I hope people have actually listened <laughs> to what you've had to say, knowing that we're going to get there. Because sometimes people uh, take certain passages and elevate those, and then minimize or discount others. And so, you know, that's we actually have asked Linda to do this first to build a framework of why she believes the way she believes. But then in the next episode, address a lot of those uh, frequently asked questions and those common questions. And I remember. You know, First Corinthians eleven. You're talking about the church at Corinth, and you have women who are publicly praying and prophesying. I remember it's just one of those, you know, or eureka moments again because I knew I had read that passage, but. I had just whatever for whatever reason minimized it. And I know what reason it was is because I wasn't that wasn't what we were focusing on. We were always talking about the men need to preach, the men need to be the one leading public prayer. But then you come to First Corinthians eleven, which is what the Church of Christ, you know, the Church of Christ pretty much builds their whole assembly on First Corinthians, and that's really the whole theology of where many of the churches of Christ try to figure out these are the things we need to do. And here you have smack dab in the middle of it, women prophesying and praying. And uh, the the answers when I started researching this that have tried to explain that away would also explain away anybody speaking in anybody praying because, you know, well, that was during a miraculous time and those things don't count, but that's what we base our teaching and preaching on today is saying, well, we we pull a principle from these passages to establish teaching today. We may not have some of the direct access to uh, some of the, the revelation and divine foreknowledge and that they had at that time, but we have scriptures and this is our basis for that. And so, I saw a lot of inconsistency with that as well. Um, but yeah, 1 Corinthians 11 was just a powerful passage because uh, you had mentioned that in passing. But for me especially, that just really, for a lot of people, they don't even know that's there. That they don't, They're do not they not really sure how to address that. Well, what do you do with 1 Corinthians 11 and women preaching and, and teaching and praying in front of a, a group of, of men and women? I mean, this wasn't a divided Bible class where just the women went. <laughs> I mean, this was right. the, the whole assembly meeting together.
1: Well, thank you for mentioning that, Kevin. I think, uh, for our, I would like to talk more about the um, actual conduct in the assemblies. There's precious little in the New Testament about what actually went on in um, in the liturgical setting in 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 church. How did they do church? There's not very much, uh, mm-hmm. but many of the um, uh, New Testaments. Uh, specific uh, discussion or or it's not even sometimes not even much of a discussion commands or discussion or addressing of certain problems that went on in the assembly they have to do with the um the tension or the conflict or the um you can almost feel the earth moving beneath that early church's feet when they realized they had freedom in christ but uh-oh we go outside this uh, catacomb or this uh, room where we're meeting, and then uh, there's not social and and judicial and legal equality outside. And so, how do we how do we do that? And besides that, all those people outside are saying we're in here uh, drinking human blood, or we're uh, immoral in some other way. we and so we're married we to our uh,
2: yeah our, we live in Arkansas yeah. and we're married to our, our you know siblings because exactly. we call each other brothers and sisters. That's right. Just so, kidding for all my friends out there who live in Arkansas.
1: So I'm uh, well, I'm here. I'm an Okie. We get those jokes, too. <laughs> just a little variation. But anyhow, um, what I'd like to conclude this session with is what I uh, and you might have guessed that egalitarians egalitarian see as the um, beautiful. Beautiful. Theological um, conclusion that uh, that Paul uh, offers in Galatians three twenty eight, where he describes how women are co heirs of salvation, and he says there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now, we need to think about what is he trying to say there? Uh, And is there a way we can apply all of Galatians 3.28? We know that when they stepped outside that assembly, there were still slaves and free. Those systems carried on, whether they were uh, abusive, oppressive, immoral, they, they were still going on for many, many centuries. We also know that there were ethnic distinctions. Uh, <clears throat> there were uh, Jews and Greeks and they had their separate cultures, their separate expectations. Um, even uh, there was disputes about whether uh, Jewish Christians should require the uh, circumcision and dietary restrictions of incoming um, uh, Gentile believers. So a, a lot of distinctions still remained outside the church, but, uh, and, and the same is true of men and women. All of those didn't fall away uh, despite Jesus's example of uh respecting and elevating women as co-heirs of salvation and co-daughters and daughters of God. But today we would say uh, we must not recognize any difference in ministry, in value, in participation, in the gifts of the spirit, whether somebody is a Jew or a Gentile or a slave or free uh, so why would we single out the male and female distinction and say well somehow that's that is different we no longer restrict leadership positions just to those who can buy them uh, as happened in the medieval church many many times we no longer exclude people from Full equality because of their skin color or their ethnic background, although that has happened in our country uh, in recent centuries. Uh, so let's stop ignoring the full import of this passage and open it up, open the church up all the way for women, too. And we can talk about that more, but uh, that next time, but I see this not just uh, uh, Paul saying, Well, in God's sight, we're all co-sinners and we're all co-have been co-redeemed. But he was actually, uh, as I understand it, talking about how we treat one another in church. And I'm turning to the Galatians 3 uh, passage right now. He says, for in Christ you are all children of God through faith and uh, you, you all belong to Christ and therefore your heirs uh, Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise and he is uh, I think opening up the eyes of the uh, ones who would impose law uh, and and legalistic constrictions and restrictions and um, bindings on uh, the new Christians, and he's saying, Not so here. We, uh, that law was fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled it. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. No, we've talked about uh, that at Day Spring recently. Um, it's, it's all new now, and we, we're going back to the just because that promise uh, way back in Genesis has been a long time in coming, it has now come. And we're going to go back and reconcile uh, and aim toward the unity that was original in God's perfect plan.
2: Well, and this this is something that really changed me. This this not just this passage, but this this principle, this narrative arc. Because even the idea, as you pointed out, of sons and daughters and being equal heirs, I think a lot of that doesn't resonate with people today because. We're missing the context of what that would have meant, especially as you know, living during that time, uh, if, if, especially when you look at the Old Testament and the whole idea of the, the firstborn usually having the, the inheritance and not just the firstborn, but it was the male <laughs> who had the inheritance. And you now see this, really everything is turned on its head because it's no longer just the male. It's no longer just the firstborn. It's no longer just the Jews it's, it's no longer those who just have a high social status. It's everyone. Everyone now can be viewed as equal heirs in receiving this promise. It's no longer just one gets it, or, you know, it's limited to just a few. It's, it's everyone. And I want to make a couple more comments just in addition to what you said, because I think, I think Galatians 3.28 is so important to this conversation. And sometimes it's overlooked. I know I overlooked it and I minimized it as just talking about salvation, looking at it as a spiritual truth that, you know, Galatians 3.28 is is reserved only to discuss salvation. It's talking about how all can be one in Christ. But the point Paul's making, I think, is so much more than that, because he doesn't just say this in Galatians 3.28, but this what, what I call the in Christ formula and its equivalents it's seen four times in Paul's writings. He, of course, Galatians 3.28, but also in the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 12.13, to the Christians in Ephesus, Ephesians 2.15, and to the Christians in Colossae Colossians, Colossians 3.11. And by giving these comparative lists, I, it seems clear, at least to me, that Paul is actually rehearsing and repeating well-known areas of social inequality at that time, and specifically the Gentiles. I mean, that was the big, big deal back then. I mean, the Gentiles were viewed as less than, they were ethnically restricted from any involvement as part of God's people. And, you know, here in Ephesians 2, Paul says, hey, that wall, that middle wall of separation has been broken down. You're all not just equal in salvation, but in the kingdom of God. You we we there's there's this equality now, and we see the the purity boundaries being a hindrance too at times. That that the Bible constantly is trying to take down of Jew and Gentile relationship, and so, you know, I see this in Christ, this social and pra- practical inequality that had been for years was being eliminated in the kingdom, and as you pointed out. Of course, there's still there were still Jew and Gentile. Of course, there was still slave and free. Of course, they're still male and female. Those things are always going to be. They were there then. They're, they're, the distinctions are in our world today. But the point is that in Christ, in the kingdom as Christians, that shouldn't exist. That's not the way things should be in Christ. And so the way that I always have understood it since I've studied this is that this changed things so much. Not just on a spiritual level, not just in pertaining to someone's salvation, but pragmatically it changed within the kingdom of how we're to treat one another. And you know, Paul's point is you have the Jews and Gentiles, they're now one in Christ. So yes, that spiritual change has occurred, but because a spiritual change has occurred, a practical change has also occurred. And that practical change is we're now all on the same. Uh, social status in the kingdom. There, there's not a difference in social status within the kingdom of God. And so, yeah, things in the world they're going to be unfair, and even in the church we're gonna, we're we're gonna uh, muck it up a lot. But in the church, with kingdom living, while we fall short, that should be the goal we're striving for. And so, I, I do. I think that is a lot of people, you know, including myself in times past, just kind of passed over that and said, well, yeah, that's just talking about salvation and all of us being one in Christ. But the more I studied that and I saw how Paul used that in three other letters, clearly this isn't just a verse someone has taken and ripped out of its context. This is a strong principle, a kingdom living principle that I think Paul establishes here. And going back to that consistency, because after listening to you and after doing my own study on this, I'm seeing how a lot of people... And I don't mean to just be rude, but a lot of people are inconsistent because they want to go to Genesis three, as we talked about, and they want to, they want to say it's okay for a woman not to have pain in childbirth, it's okay for a man not to, all these different things, it's, but, uh, you know, a male is still supposed to rule over a female. So we see that inconsistency. And as Lee pointed out, we want to have, okay, well, there were pro- you always see one, women prophesying, women prophets in the Old Testament. We see it in the gospel accounts. We see it in Corinth. We see it in Acts. But in Acts 2, where Peter says male and female, sons and daughters, maybe it was just the sons, you know, in that passage. And then we also see it here in this. Uh, these the, the societal statements or these parallels that Paul's making where we would say, of course, Christians shouldn't see Jew and Gentile. Of course, Christians shouldn't see you in in the sense of making a a negative distinction. Sure, we should recognize them, who they are and and their culture they bring to the table. But in Christ, that should be one. Um, You know, and I think about when, uh, for example, Peter rebuked Paul, or I'm sorry, Paul rebuked Peter the other way around when Peter was playing the hypocrite. And, you know, Peter could have have barked back at Paul and say, Paul, you know that in Christ we're equal but this is the world and, and and you know we can't just go and eat with the gentiles i mean sure maybe at a church meal we can but i mean this is the world peter didn't do that peter knew he was wrong because a a pragmatic change took place with that spiritual truth. So we understand it with all of these other classifications, slave and master, all those classifications, but yet male and female, we want to say, oh, that's just a spiritual distinction there. So I see another inconsistency when people want to argue that. So um, this is just fantastic. I think you've done a phenomenal job of putting this together and uh, just explaining it. And of course, like, like I've already mentioned, there's a lot of people out there myself included. We want to know, well, what do you say about those passages? How can you be an elder? I mean, doesn't the Bible say males only in eldership? So I'm looking forward to getting into the context of those passages. And uh, so if you're listening, um, please make sure to tune in in next week as well, because we're really going to be dealing with the context of those passages.
1: Thank you both, gentlemen.
0: Yes, thank you very much for being with us. We really appreciate your time. And as we wrap this up, we want to give the same ending salutation we give every week. We want to extend our thanks to all of our listeners. We thank all of you. We appreciate you all so much. Our podcast has grown tremendously in the almost year that we've been um, engaging in this project. It's, it's been a fun project, and hopefully we have many more years to come. Of uh, good discussions as we explore faith and pursue grace. Thank you all for listening. Share this podcast with your friends. If you have any questions or concerns, comments or suggestions, drop us an email. We have our email address listed in the show notes below. Give us that five-star review on iTunes or whatever platform it is that you listen to us on. That way we become more visible to those in podcast land. We appreciate all of you. Thank you all so much, and we'll see you all again soon.